Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, 3 through, 11, 3 through 12. Um, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1014. Please stand if you are able. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In the, thing, in the things that have now been announced to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. <clears throat> While I was in seminary, my brother had uh, had to come to Dallas for a job, and as I always did when I met him, I would share the gospel. And he was at a really good place in his life. He had just made the equivalent of a half a million dollars on a quick uh, real estate deal. He was riding high. And, so after I shared the gospel, he said, you know, I don't really care about heaven. He says, what can God do for me right now? He passed up the gospel that day because he didn't understand and I wasn't able to clearly express to him the tremendous treasure that the gospel is not just for eternity, but 
to the here and now. Tom read about 10 verses. We are zeroing in on simply three words in those verses. Concerning this salvation. So what is this salvation that we're talking about? Two weeks ago, Travis unpacked this passage for us and gave us a sense of that salvation. Last week, I told us that there was really going to be two parts to the sermon. The first, showing that this salvation is treasured by the prophets, by the angels, and by God himself. And that this week, we would talk about what that treasure actually is. What does it mean? What is salvation? Because when we understand salvation, we will realize that it is enough. There's really nothing else we need if we have it, that salvation. So, so let's look at the word salvation or saved. It has a past, present, and future connotations. We often think of salvation as being that ticket to heaven. We've got that ticket to heaven, but it is so much more. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when you were dead, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So it speaks about something that has taken place in our past, but it's a perfect tense, so it's something that's taken place in our past that continues with us today and into eternity. And so there is a moment that, in, that we have salvation. It comes to us by grace, and that salvation means we have been forgiven by God so that now, though we were dead and separated from God, we are now alive and in relationship with God. That we were sinners. And though we still sin, we have become new creatures in Jesus Christ. That is something that has taken place in our lives. That salvation culminates in the future. 1 Peter 1.5 Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we wait that ultimate consummation of all that salvation is. And then there is a present aspect to salvation. 1 Peter 2.2 Like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word and by it you may grow up into salvation. So let's return to my brother's question. What can God do for me right now? What is this salvation experience that God has for us right now? But let's not pass up the, that future salvation because when we understand that future salvation, it has a tremendous impact upon our lives right now. The assurance 
of our eternity with God in his immediate presence will transform our perspective of life itself. Maybe some of you have experienced this, but a toddler leaves uh, her binky behind at church, and when it becomes bedtime, all of a sudden, she's looking for that binky, she begins to cry, she might have a temper tantrum, there's no way she's going to sleep, neither are you, (laughs) until you drive back to church, get that binky, and bring it to her. Now, the problem isn't the binky. The problem is her perspective. It's in what she is finding her security because two years later, she won't care about the binky at all. But in many ways, we are always like that. As we get a little older, it might be the boyfriend or the girlfriend that's our security. And when that relationship goes sour, there we are crying again. As we grow toward adulthood, that security might be our 401k, and so when the Dow drops 800 points one day and then continues to drop 800 points, we might be crying again. Or that security might be in the doctor's report. And when it isn't good, we fall into distress. Salvation gives us an entirely new perspective. From an earthly perspective, the worst thing that can happen to us is to die. From an eternal perspective, the best thing that can happen to a Christian is to die. Because we enter into the presence of God. We receive what we have always longed for perfection as we grow, become like Christ. We can look at it this way too, as we're living in a a storybook. And as we read that book and our hero and heroine are going through trials and travails, we become very nervous and anxious. And then we turn to the final chapter and we read, Our hero and heroine live happily ever after. Now we turn back to the book and we have an entirely different attitude. Yes, we might rise a little bit with the roller coaster of what's going on in their lives, yet we do it with a security and an assurance because we know the end of the story. Yes, eternity has a tremendous impact upon right now because it changes our perspective. It also changes our value system. I remember he used to hear very often the, the old saying, we've only one life, it soon will be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When we gain that eternal perspective, our value system changes and we realize that everything in this life is transitory except what we do for Jesus Christ. And it's what Jesus himself said. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. See, the realization of eternal rewards attaches our heart to God himself. And it transforms us from being slaves to materialism and the things of this world to being servants of God. You know, I've heard many Christians shy away from the idea and concept of rewards because it sounds like if I'm living to get rewards, I'm very selfish. It's possible, but it's also possible to really be doing it for your eternal relationship with God. You know, there is nothing wrong with self-interest. God created us to have, to want what's good, to, to want a sense of well-being. The problem isn't having self-interest. Jesus had self-interest. He, he went into the garden and he prayed, Lord, if there's any way that you can work your plan aside from the cross, that's what I want. But then he prayed, not my will, your will be done. See, he had self-interest, but his desire for God and his desire for us was greater than that self-interest. And so God gives us rewards. Uh, but we need to understand the nature of these rewards. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian life a mercenary life. There are different kinds of rewards. There's a reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. It's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany these things. For instance, money is not the natural reward for love. That's why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lovers. He's not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but the activity itself in consummation. Another example is a person, a mercenary who goes to war. He will fight for our country because of what he's being paid. The pay, his, his reward is the money. But a patriot goes to war. His reward is victory for his country, to have peace and security in his country. God's rewards are that type of reward. It's not the size of a mansion you get in heaven or the amount of gold that paves your driveway. These are spiritual rewards which attach us to God and honor God. Here's three of them. First Peter in chapter 5 is going to talk about elders. In the, he calls elders to humility. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here are people, elders who have given up glory in this world, humbly serving others. And what is God going to give him? The glory that we all desire in our hearts. A James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so think, as, as we go through trials, difficulties, suffering, it's almost as though we're losing life. We're not getting the, grabbing the gusto of life that others are having who aren't suffering. And James says, if we suffer, the crown we get is life. God's life with him. Second Timothy, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who love his appearing. The crown is what? Righteousness. The fulfillment of the righteousness we are trying to live out as we expect the Lord to come at any moment. See, none of these is a physical payday for work well done. They're the fulfillment of our spiritual pursuits in life. The reward for marriage is intimacy. The reward for pursuing God is intimacy with God, the greatest desire of a Christian's heart. So our eternal future, our eternal, our, our future salvation is really a, enough to fill our lives. But there is a present aspect to our salvation. Uh, the words we're preaching this morning concerning this salvation, it flows right after Peter talks about living our lives for Christ, obtaining the outcome of faith, the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> now the salvation of your souls is not just getting to heaven. It's the deliverance of our lives here and now from futility into fullness. See, the, the prophets who explored and sought out to understand the time and the person of this salvation, they, they weren't enamored with a ticket to heaven. What grabbed them was the promise of the new covenant that our hearts would be transformed from hearts of stone, as we shared today, to hearts of flesh. That the law itself would be internalized and lived out from inside of us and flow out of us. The coming of the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to, to fill us, to walk with us and through us. That's salvation of the soul. Uh, one of my former professors, Zane Hodges, put it this way. The salvation of the soul is the total transforming work of God upon our lives, which is presently being real, realized. We are growing in salvation as we uh, experience more and more the riches and fullness of what salvation is. Salvation of the soul is the work that God is doing in changing us. 
to the people he intended us to be before sin ever entered the world. It's the deliverance of our lives from meaninglessness to purposefulness, from pursuing the temple to gaining an eternal legacy, from the pursuit of personal happiness to the life of joy to putting off the old man and putting on the new. That's the salvation that God is offering us, that kind of transformation. It's the kind of salvation you heard in the testimonies this morning of men who were, who were purposeless. And now God has given them a purpose. God is making them. He's still in the process of making them whole. That's the salvation of our souls. So what Jesus spoke about when he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That word life is the same word as soul. And he's saying, if we outside of God try to grab all that there is in life, we will actually lose life as it was intended to be. The only way to truly have life the life that Jesus promised, that he came and said, I will give you life and give it you abundantly, is to live for Jesus Christ. Jesus gave the parable of a man who, who had these storehouses and uh, he was very wealthy and he filled his storehouses and then he said, soul Let's, tear the, let's, let's build more storehouses. And so he builds more. As he's about to build more storehouses, he dies. And Jesus is essentially saying, what, what does that man have? He put it all into things of this earth, and, and it's gone. We lose our lives unless we store up the treasures in heaven and let, we let God give us that life experience we are meant to have here and now. And I just want to point out three aspects of the salvation, and there's so much more. We can just touch the, skim the surface this morning. One, it's the joy that Jesus Christ offers. You see, a lot of people think the Christian life is the opposite of joy. Jesus said the Christian life is fullness of joy. Just before he was arrested, he prayed for his disciples and for us. This is one of his prayers. He said, Father, these things I speak in this world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, that's what Jesus is praying for us, to have his joy. And what was Jesus' joy? Intimacy with the Father closeness with the Father, love of the Father, glorifying the Father, being glorified by the Father. It was his relationship with the Father. Jesus wants us to experience that kind of joy that will govern our lives. Secondly, he offers the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you had these qualities, 
would it be enough? You see, we pursue the things of the world to get these things. We pursue relationships to, to get that love. We pursue happiness to really get that joy. We pursue, pursue uh, security in order to get the peace. We want to have patience. We don't want to be getting angry. We want to be kind and good. We know that's right and faithful to God. See, the Holy Spirit comes to fill us. And if we abide in Christ, if we live in Christ, he does fill us and he gives this fruit here and now in our lives. The third aspect of salvation I'm touching on this morning is the whole salvation process is a process whereby we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Romans 8.29 said it. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. That's the target. That's what we will be when our salvation comes in Christ's return. But it's something he's working in our lives right now. This is an illustration I've used a few times here. God made us. And really, what's our identity? It's the beloved of Christ, but who am I? I am one made in the image of God. I am not what I feel yesterday, today, or what I'll feel tomorrow. It's not my personality quirks of yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It's I am made, you are made in the image of God. But what happened was sin entered the world and we were born into sin. Now, when you think of image, like where do you go to see your image? You go to a mirror. So to be the image of God is really to be a mirror reflection of the very character of God. But when sin came in, that mirror became warped. It's like, and now... The image that we show is like an image of ourselves in a funhouse mirror. The head, the eyes, the hands, the legs are all there. But it's completely distorted and, and comical. And that's what sin has done in our lives. Salvation is the Lord straightening out that mirror of our lives to reflect more and more the real image of God and what would that look like? Jesus Christ. He said, he said, do you want to see the Father? Look at me. Hebrew says he's the perfect representation of God. So think about this in your life. If you become more like Jesus Christ... You can be as faithful as Jesus is to the Father. You can have the joy that Christ has in his relationship with the Father. You can be as tolerant as Jesus was with the woman at the well. As caring as he was touching the untouchable lepers. As empathetic as he was as he wept over Jerusalem as 
forgiving as he was to the soldiers who beat him and the religious leaders who mocked him at the foot of the cross. And as loving as he was, as he gave his life for us. Aren't those the qualities we want? That's what God's trying to produce in the salvation through us today. In the early night. Early 1990s, Terry Horton, a retired truck driver, purchased a painting from a California thrift shop for $5. So she, she bought it because she had a friend who was depressed, and, and this painting was very uh, colorful. And so she brought it to her friend, and when they tried to get it into her trailer, uh, it wouldn't fit. So they thought for a moment, well, we could put it out there for target practice. And instead, they decided they'd put it out in their yard sale, among the other items. Well, an art teacher happened by and looked at it and said, you know, that could be a Jackson Pollock. And he said, a what? Well, it's a famous painter. And so Terry decided to try to authenticate it. She got a forensic expert to see a partial fingerprint that matched Jackson Pollock, paint chip that matched paint in his, uh, in his studio. She was offered $9 million for that painting. Can you imagine a thrift store owner saying, five bucks? All the people who walked by it, even she saying, good for target practice, not knowing the treasure that that was. God offers us an incredible treasure. How many people walk by it? How about you? Have you walked by it? Don't let it, don't walk by it today. You know, the thing is, it doesn't even cost you $5. It's by grace, because it was paid for by Jesus Christ, not by $5, not by $5 billion, $5 trillion, but with his own blood, with his own life, so that you can have it free. Free by knowing, coming to a realization that you have sinned. You have pursued your own way and not God's way. And yet God still loves you enough to have died for you. And if you realize that you've pursued your own way, that your sin is, is despicable in God's eyes, that you're in trouble and you need help, that's why God sent Jesus to be that help, to pay for your sin so you wouldn't have to. So you could have salvation past, present, and future. Christians, do you treasure the gospel? Do you realize that it's enough? That it's more than enough? That it's super abundantly beyond all that we could ask or dream of? Are you experiencing the salvation God wants you to experience? Here and now. 
And do you realize the treasure you have in your hands with the gospel when you walk by other people? Is it such a treasure that you want to share it with others and you can't help but share it with others like these men? Father, we thank you for the incredible gifts you've given us, the incredible love, even though for me I pushed you away and pushed you away and pushed you away. Thank you for waking me up. Thank you, Lord, for this salvation. May I grow up into it. May we all. Amen.